You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. fans my name is alan this is the modern musicology podcast i've got two of my co-hosts here i've got rob hey and stephanie seymour sup that's really rob's intro but since he didn't do it Uh, he didn't do it so it's up for grabs (laughs) and we are joined by a very special guest ira elliott from not a surf who you were on the show, I don't know, a year or so ago. It seems like so How long the heck ago. are you, Ira? I'm happy to be back. It seems like just yesterday. Or maybe it's it seems not... like forever ago. I don't know. I'm very happy to so, be back on, on this very uh, suspicious occasion. Yeah. So you're saying it seemed like yesterday? That's not no, so I'm far sorry. away. No, you can, that's, yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, no, I'm not going to, you know what? Let's, <laughs> let's let it all loose. This is a beatle kind of day. And just like right. any Beatles is good Beatles today. That's right, right on. So, yeah, the thing that brings us all together tonight is that we are celebrating the release of what is most likely the very last brand new Beatles song. It's called Now and Then. And tonight we're going to be just diving into it. We're going to talk about the song. We're going to talk about the music video. We're going to talk about the behind the scenes making of documentary. We're going to talk about all kinds of things related to all of that stuff. Before we jump into that, though, I do want to get in a little bit of feedback from one of our previous episodes. And this is from a good buddy of ours named Eric Sensava. And he writes, hey, guys, just listen to your final albums session. Very interesting episode, especially the artists who knew they were dying, like David Bowie and Johnny Cash. There is one more I had thought of, and that is Warren Zevon's The Wind, which he recorded when he knew he was on borrowed time due to aggressive cancer. It's a very thoughtful, poignant album. Many very well-known musicians helped him out with such as Don Henley and Bruce Springsteen and many more. And the final track called Keep Me In Your Heart For A While an emotional final message. He died just a few weeks after the album was released. Thanks again for all that you do. Eric, you know, that is so like, I could not believe I forgot that album because Uh, that, that it's just one of the best albums. uh, Just hearing the title makes, breaks my heart. I know. It's like, who was like, it's like Freddie Mercury's uh, who wants to live forever. Oh my God. Yeah, Yeah. totally. It's so unbelievable. So sad. So beautiful. What? Very much like the song we're going to discuss. Mm -hmm. Very much. Exactly. Um, So, Eric, thank you so much for writing to us once again. We love hearing from you and we love hearing from anybody who's got feedback for us. You can email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail.com or just drop us a line on any of our socials. Ira and I have known each other for like a hundred years. We, I've known Ira since he was in a band called the Fuzz Tones when I guess we both hung out at Danceteria a lot and Ira played there, right? Oh, absolutely. But I know everybody knows Ira from Not A Surf because it's one of the best bands ever. And I have my Not A Surf shirt on right now. Oh, thank you. I didn't even see that. Thank you. That's so sweet. But Ira, so I really do, though, want you to talk, to sort of introduce people to your 
other band, Bambi yeah. Kino, yeah. Who, who just on a side note, we just saw you guys a few months ago play. And it, to me, it was one of the most like happy, joyous, carefree, like it just incredibly fun rock and roll shows I've yeah, seen in a long yeah. time. Yeah. And little plug, they are playing, Bambi Kino is playing in Brooklyn on December 16th at Union Hall, Union Pool in Williamsburg. So everyone should go, please. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for asking about that. That's a really, um, it's a, a Bambi Kino is kind of a rare bird and, yes. uh, it's this, it's this, uh, well, it wasn't designed to be, but the, 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 it, it happened in this really wonderful, perfect, fortuitous way. Uh, the singer, main singer, Mark and I were in a band years ago called uh, Maplewood, a really fun band, uh, kind of a West coasty kind of sounds like the band America. Um, and, uh, at one point we had, uh, got, oh, we had gotten, I guess we had an American release. We had a German release on a Hamburg label called Tapita, and they set up a little German tour for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was fi- including Hamburg. So the day we had off, we were doing our little Beatles tour, as you do. You know, here's the where yeah, they totally. were here, and they, here's where the place, where's the cavern, you know, not the cavern, but yeah, the Star Club used to be here, and yep. oh, the Kaiser Keller, that's still there. And uh, there's a a venue there called the Grunspan, which is a uh, like a 2000 seat concert venue, which not a surf had played on a number of occasions. And right next door to it, shoulder to shoulder, is this little place called the Indra. And it's still got the little elephant on it. And there's a plaque on the wall, you know, uh, whatever it is, uh, October 16th, 1960. I don't, that's not the exact date, but something like that. Uh, you know, Beatles first show in Hamburg. And we're looking at this plaque on the wall. And this was 2009. Mm-hmm. And that date was... The, the next year was going to be the 50th anniversary. And Mark and I looked at each other and said, shouldn't there be a band playing that shit in that room? I mean, it's a working club with a stage. Like, yes. shouldn't there? And we were like, look at each other and yeah. And I think within two minutes, he, it's got to be called the band Bikino because Mark's like that. And I'm like, yeah, perfect name. Ch- check. Okay, <laughs> that's, take, that's taken care of. <laughs> and then we had to figure out who the rest of the band was going to be. And and uh, um, and then... It, uh, uh, and then we had, I had met Eric, the bass yeah. player, because I had just done a Loser's Lounge show in New York, the Loser's Lounge series. If anyone's not familiar, I can't tell the whole story, but it's a rotating cast of, you know, the band stays the same, rotating singers, and it's, it's a really fun theme show. And it's oh, awesome. it's so fantastic. Yeah, we love and, it. And um, I met Eric for the first time. I was the drummer. I was like a fill-in drummer for their main guy for a while who went out on the road with uh, Blue Man. <laughs> and so my first show was a McCartney show. So I was like in my element, and Eric was... I don't know who knew Eric, but he came in and like uh, we fell in love with each other, rhythm section wise, like McCartney fan. He had this killer voice and and we became friends during the whatever week or two of those shows. And he was the first guy I thought of. I'm like, oh, I got to get that guy, Eric. He would love to do this. So I, it was three. And then Mark had a guitar friend of his who was the original. This is a kind of a Pete Best story. He was the original guitar player and we did some rehearsals with him and Eric was not happy with him. He's like, this guy's not really holding it together. And I was on the road with Not A Surf and I was telling Doug Gillard about this band. He's like, wow, we were lucky to have Doug Gillard playing in Not A Surf at the time too, another fortuitous event. Uh, And Doug was like, and I'm looking at Doug and Doug's looking at me and I, I said, Mark, you think I, let's ask. Let's ask Doug Gillard. <laughs> he's like, hell, he's like, hell, fuck yeah. So then I, so what I had was this. Suddenly, I was like, I was like in cream all of a sudden, you know. Right. It's totally um, like it is a super. Exactly. Group. That's exactly. So so uh, so you know, three great friends of mine, lovely yeah. guys, all massive Beatle fanatics, and like, let's just do this. Like, let's go deep into the catalog and do this stuff. So we came at it with this. The beautiful thing about it is, if you're 
if you're a musician who loves the Beatles, and then you can use your musicianship to direct that love back out at an audience, yeah. that's a very powerful circle that happens because people come because they love that music. And, the, and the, when the band really digs into it and plays it in that sort of, a, and it's a hard thing to get at because people are too polite. You have to learn a rock and roll band in a room is an aggressive, angry, sweaty, nasty it, thing. Yeah. And you have to, you have to be ever so slightly out of control. Um, and so and like Gillard, Gillard's one of those guys who can play as if he's completely out of control. Like, you know what? He can lay in a perfect Chuck Berry solo, or he can sort of like step on the gas and do some angular television, you know, and make it really like veer off the tracks and everything yeah. becomes very exciting. So everyone's skill level is very high. But the songs don't demand skill. They just demand that you get into them completely and give them everything you have. And I'm telling and you. And so for the four of us, it's a, it's a rapturous experience. We don't, and we're so particular. We only play, like we only want to do what we do. It's like play for an hour, take a break. Play for an hour, take a break. Play for, we want, don't want to do less than three. We don't open for your band. We don't want to, exactly. you know, we only do, like we want the whole night. We want to be the band. You go out, you have a beer, you smoke a cigarette, come back in, twist around. And that's what the Beatles did. I yeah, mean, exactly. We're trying to recreate that experience on a on a level. It's hard to like. We don't even we don't even mic the if we if depending on the room and we usually play small rooms. We don't put microphones on all the like. I don't let them put microphones on the drums like maybe an yep. overhead and a kick mic. You know, it wouldn't sound. It would sound like a modern band if we mic'd everything and put the guitar amps through the PA, vocals through the PA, and maybe some ghostly drums. But the sound of, of amps in a room. That's what that's Union Pool is perfect for that. It's not a very big room. It's woody and the guitar amps, like whatever these 15, 25 watt guitar amps, they sound killer. You just kick the shit and drums are fucking loud. You know, what? you put microphones yeah. on drums, not the way I play them. Right. So, so that is why that is, this is so. So it's very thrilling. Deep. It's thrilling. And you get really deep into that headset of, of uh, you know, sing. Like I also, it's a, a challenge for me because I get to sing lead. Yeah. You, know, you get to sing all the harmony stuff. You know, I sing a bunch of, uh, I sing one after nine oh nine and Anna, and oh, uh, Anna. there's a lot of yeah. all the great harmony great. singing. I love to be a harm. Oh, that's one of my favorite things. Harmony singing while playing the drums is like that kind of three part call answer stuff. Oh, it's so dreamy to be able to do that. Oh, it's one of the greatest things. I I relish it. And this is so perfect because this meshes exactly with our show today. Yes. All right. So, very last Beatles. Now and then, what are our overall impressions of it? I mean, this is, you know, this is not something that happens every day. So what do you think? I'll say, I'll, I'll just say, I might have a lighter take on this than, I mean, I am a hardcore Beatles fan, but like Ira, I think you're like the hardest core Beatles fan I ever know. Yeah, but I guess, I guess I earned that reputation. <laughs> I am so happy that it came out. And I think yeah. it is a wonderful, just beautiful thing that happened. I I've I know some people have it you know opinions like oh this was put together by you know AI people were in separate rooms or whatever but I just want to kind of remind people too like this do you remember how we were working during COVID like everybody this is how we were making music too you know everybody's doing this now anyway 
So, but it it's not even COVID though. No, I mean I've heard people say that it's not, you know it's not everybody in the same room, so it's not really a Beatles song. Do you know how many songs ended of up on course. Beatles albums where they weren't together, where it was one guy in a studio, of or where it was two of them, and yeah. where they're recording yeah. parts separately? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that does not like, define like Beatles songs. Just should be kind of happy about this and we've yeah. got a beautiful thing and you know everyone around you know from yoko to sean to whatever is a very they're all happy with this so i feel yeah. like we that should be the kind of the the bar <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah totally yeah the interesting thing for me is looking at this i was thinking about this this morning and i think that one of the weird things about it is you know i've listened to this record probably a million times by now and going into it, you're you're going into it like, okay, I'm hearing the, the last song by the Beatles. You get that. I'm going to hear a Beatles record where two of the guys are gone and it celebrates them. I get that. But the thing that got me is like, I'm going to listen to a Beatles song that I don't know the words to. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, which was kind of like weird. So I think that if you are a diehard Beatles fan, that kind of puts you in a weird footing to begin with because you know... Yeah what you're getting. Having said that, the first time I listened to it, I cried a little. I think we all did, you know, just because it's so melancholy. And then you just sort of like, um, the part that gets me isn't on the record. The part that gets me is on the documentary when they play the Lennon vocal by itself. Mm. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I've heard people say, oh, this is really more of a John Lennon solo record than is a Beatle record. But you have to put yourself when you listen to this in the mindset of 1970. And in the world of 1970, this very well still could have been a Beatles record. This still could have been something had the Beatles not broken up or still broken up, but later on gotten back together and played again. This could be something that happened. There are lots of different ways in which this record could inhabit the world. We also live in a world that's tearing each other apart. Let's find something beautiful and awesome in it. So I'm celebrating it as a moment in cultural history. Uh, I'm celebrating it as hearing, you know, a band that sort of is responsible for the very fabric of me listening to music and playing it on the radio. I also think just the skill and mastery of making it happen is right. yeah. pretty amazing. I mean, it's... And the story all to its own. Yeah. The story of itself, the backstory to it, which I know we're going to get into is incredible, but yeah. Yeah. just also the all the different aspects of it are great. The strings do not sound like they were recorded today and not in 1970. The guitars do not sound like the Harrison parts do not sound like they're from 1995. This very easily sounds like they're in four separate rooms at Abbey Road or wherever doing their thing and then coming together and mixing it. Uh, no pun intended. That's what it sounds like to me. Um, there is a certain melancholy to it that I think is is really great, yeah. which I think is nice. I don't want the last Beatle record to be like, you know, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of want the Beatles to go out like this. Right. But it also kind of fits where the Beatles were in 1970 near the breakup, at least to me. Um, hmm. So that's that's kind of my long winded thoughts on it. All right, Ira. You've said you've been obsessed with it all week. Yeah, so. no, it's because you know, I was one of those Beatles people who like, you know, saw it coming from some time. Like, you know, I don't know when uh, for Mark, uh, my friend in Bambikino is a is a journalist and often gets review copies. And he's like, you know, he's when journalists find out about things, I find out about them through Mark. Right. So we knew like whatever months ago this was going to be happening. I'm like, ah, oh, it's marking on my calendar. So, uh, you know, when you have anticipate something, you know, it, it has another, it gets blown out of proportion. And so, uh, yeah, so I was waiting to see like when, you know, what, 
which I'm what I'm going to buy it. I'm going to have to buy it. So like, I'm like, I'm shopping for which single I want and which, you know, I'll just get the plain black vinyl, whatever. <laughs> so it first became a shopping enterprise because I have to add it to my collection at a very basic level, whether it was great, bad or indifferent, <laughs> it would still have to sit in the rack with everything else. So right. that was the first thing. And so, um, yeah. And like everybody else, I watched the short video that whatever the 35 second video I'm like, hmm, interesting, good teaser. And mm-hmm. then I waited around and it was at 3.30. I watched the uh, the long one and uh, also cried at the sound of Lennon's voice. Um, you know, it was a, it was a very emotional, like, you know, and the, the, the pull quote where they give, you know, McCartney, how lucky was I that I had these yes. five men? You know, that's, you can't, who's not going to tear up a little bit when Paul fucking McCartney says some shit like that? You're like, fuck, hell yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then... Uh, and then I waited for the single to drop that morning. And then, uh, I, you know, it's the same as everybody else. And I listened to it. And uh, so, uh, again, the first, the, the main selling point is just the sound of John's voice, period. Like you, that, whatever you say about the rest of the song, the fact that we have just the sound of John's voice is such a magic thing. And maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe young people don't hear the same thing I hear. But like, like Rob said, like, you know, the sound of Lennon's voice uh, carries it a particular gravitas, you know, to our, in our culture that, few things have and the sound of Lennon mm-hmm. and Barney singing together yes. has an added emotional gravitas that it's hard to even you know people complaining as they do about um, Macca's presently croaky singing voice you know yeah. uh, someone's like well why can't they AI his, his old singing voice oh they, they should AI that <laughs> so oh um, yeah so that's oh, well, you're right when things. they when they hit that harmony when the you know you hear the Beatles harmony Barry, in that McCartney's, song McCartney is kind of buried in the mix a little bit he's not really super prominent yeah I, yeah he's there but he's yeah in a really nice way so anyway uh, I see and then you know uh my cynical side, like, is this just, oh, this song is so great. It's like repeated, the same thing every time. Like, it took me a few listens to understand what's going on. Plus, I have to say, it hit me on a particular level because I find the song to be incredibly sad. And maybe yeah. it's because I happen to be at this point in my life, I'm going through a kind of a sad thing. And I don't want to talk about it. It's not important. But as someone who's going through a sad moment in their life, the song hit me on a profound level because it spoke to a sort of an existential sadness about mortality, about a number of things um, that were really, really, that hit me on a level that was beyond like the actual lyrics in the song. The fact that they're kind of a little bit, you know, was, uh, you know, the original demo was clearly aimed at Yoko, but um, the McCartneyized version is more about their relationship, clearly about the, the relationship between John and Paul. Uh, the, the Yoko thing is still there, clearly. But here in this context, you have more, I think McCartney has sort of engineered it to be a song uh, in a way about their dynamic. You know, I, well, I, that's how I'm I, singing. I miss you. It's like, I'm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah. No, there's a room. Uh, I think I read an article maybe in the Times today by a guy who actually, or supposed about by a guy who was writing a book about the relationship between John and Paul specifically. And he wrote this article about, you know, they have a very specific relationship, which is almost like lovers in a way, the way they, they responded to each other in songs in the seventies and the, mm. the vitriol of, Yep. The attack song to the attacks, you know, the you threw it all, you know, uh, you took your, it was your lucky break and broke yes. it too. And how do you sleep and back and forth, you know, while, you know, d- you know, all generating a lot of record sales uh, through the, yeah. <laughs> through yeah. it as well. But they were great songs. They were great songs. Uh, you know, the, this, this painful part of their lives generated great songs. And I hear that same pain in this song. So it's very powerful. 
you 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 mentioned that both of you mentioned that moment in the documentary where you hear John's isolated vocal. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about that because not only is that such a poignant moment because you're hearing John's voice, but this demo, you know, has been around forever and it's circulated a bit. And, you know, a lot of people have heard the song before this version of it, but you've always heard it in that very muffled sense, you know, with the piano that comes in a little too loud and it kind of obscures some of John's vocal and all this kind of stuff. So on both of those levels to hear that yeah. vocal, completely isolated away from everything else and ringing as clear and as true as it does is, I mean, I think that they put that in there for both reasons. One, I think it was a demonstration of the technology that made this single possible, but also to just hit you square in the feels. There's John's voice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's yeah. what an amazing yeah. moment that was. Peter no, Jackson was talking yeah. about that whole, you know, the way they developed the technology for, I mean, first of all, they developed the technology, Peter Jackson and his team. That's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, this is what AI is good for. It's, you know, this is a yes. good use of AI. I feel yeah. like this yeah. is way they separate, they're oh, yeah. separating tracks of music. And, and that yeah. is, that is all they're doing. You they're couldn't not, have had, you, you couldn't have watched yeah. uh, Get Back. You couldn't have watched Get Back. That's exactly no, cause, right. Because, you know, I've, I've heard those, you know, the original tapes, I've had those bootlegs for years and they're, mm -hmm. they're mostly like, what? Like there's so much noise and pianos and guys clacking, right. clapboards. Yeah. You can't hear, make out anything. It's That's really difficult. Right. So they created that and then they used it for this. Yeah. Genius. Genius. Yeah. Right. It's interesting, you know, in the, in both the making of, well, mainly in the making of, but also in the music video where they blend the footage of Paul and Ringo now mm -hmm. recording the new parts mm -hmm. and them working on it in 95, trying to make it happen. And that, that sort of leads me into the music video. So this is jumping ahead a little bit, but the way that the music video the, the the vision mixing in that thing where it takes them from the early 60s and mixes them with the late 60s and mixes them with 95 and mixes them with now and has different elements you know different aspects of each guy interacting with each other and with themselves at different it was i just thought it was amazingly well done yeah i know you see like little young paul and younger paul and then you see older paul and yeah. John. I, I, I my feeling was i i be honest I, my feeling was really discordant with what i felt yeah. the song to be mm. like i saw the song as this yeah. beautiful sad melancholy thing and the video is very jokey and it, um, it is in places. I agree. That, that bothered me in a way I, I couldn't really place up. And, and, you know, to, mm -hmm. to the, even the mashup of, you know, like he's a genius director. Clearly we don't have to like, you know, his credibility is beyond reproach, but I don't know. I, I, I didn't come away from that video going, gee, I, I'm really excited to watch that one more time. I'm like, uh, I'm like, uh, I don't know. My I agree with you. Like, uh, I did. I, I, I couldn't enjoy it for some reason. Uh, I'm yeah. I, 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 I could be too picky sometimes. I'll go back. I, I will go back and watch again. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, that's I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that there's that moment where there's a close up on John and he's sort of looking off into the sun and that is so beautiful. And then there's, then there's the one of him and Yoko just walking hand in hand in a park. Oh, and I'm shocked that that footage even exists. Oh, like yeah. somebody filmed that, but then everything else Great. is the jokey John. It's the fun loving John. It's the silly John, which is great, 
I just feel yeah. like they may have overemphasized that a little bit because yeah. it doesn't match the tone yeah, of yeah. the video or of the song. Yeah, that was that was my my issue with it as well. Yeah, though there are, you're you're right. There's some beautiful footage in there. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I was also going to say they they um the guy. Well, this is really jumping ahead now, but the guy who did the parody of the video, the see, I've watched that a number of times. Yes, see that to me was really. <laughs> I mean. How special is this? I don't. I want to know his name. Yeah, you got to you got to set this up for the yeah, for yeah. listeners yes, who may not have seen this video. What is this that we're talking about? We're talking about like a meta version of this song already. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I, I find the same video. I was looking for. I found a video that com- that compared the original demo to the song, and they were sort of a being them and what stayed in and what went out. It was a really nice breakdown, and I think I went looking for that, and maybe right below it. Yeah. It was that video. It was already trending uh, that <laughs> night. I'm like, what? I got to check that out. And I think I put it in a list. I didn't watch it. But you said to me the next day, I'm like, there it is. That's there that it thing. is, yeah. But it looks like tiny little, tiny little beetles. It looks really tiny, small in this little set. I'm like, and he does and like the Ed Sullivan show, basically. The, the Ed quiet. Sullivan set, yeah. yeah. He made it a little tiny. He, I don't know how he did that. Then, like, he turned that around in 24 hours. Yeah. So he recorded a version of Now and Then as if the Beatles had recorded it in 1964. Then. Yeah. And of course, and he plays sounds... every instrument. Yeah. Yeah. He, he does every part. Yeah. And I don't know how in the world, A, it's a great arrangement of the song. Yeah. It really sounds convincing. And it makes it feel like that song isn't that removed from the Beatles history, you know, from the early stage of Beatle development. It, it sounds like it fits. But then the fact that this guy wrote this, recorded this, filmed this, edited this in about 24 hours yeah. blows it's, it's my gotta mind. It's got to be some sort of prize for something like that. That's just outrageous. Right. <laughs> and so my feeling, Ira, is that the yeah. total meta meta version of this Bambikino <laughs> yeah. doing this song, doing really, his I, version of it. Hard, that would be a pretty hard sell for me I, to, to lay on those guys. I think they would, I think they would, I actually was going to send them that, uh, um, <laughs> And just to th- then we could all like have a laugh about it because it is pretty fucking hilarious. It is hilarious. <laughs> I know. But uh, no, but I think I think what you see is like the song itself is really very simple. You know, it's only a handful mm-hmm. of five or six chords. So you can play it in, in, in that Beatles, the early Beatles style. You know, like it doesn't sound like an early Beatles composition chordally or melodically. But no. you can play it in that style and give it that, you know, Chuck Berry thing. Yes. You know? So he like he heard like oh if I just kind of read I put the chunky guitars on there and you know yeah. obviously he's got he's got all those instruments too he had a really he had an old Rickenbacker and he had a he had you know he got his hair behind his ears to look like Paul he's got a little oh he's all the outfits like yeah. with the, the from the different time periods like Sergeant Pepper and, yeah and you know. he walks in he does walk ons as the yeah. as other Beatles he comes in and walks out he got a lot in there I'm that's uh that's it's an really impressive, impressive achievement it's hilarious yeah. it's hilarious. <laughs> I guess I have, I have a question. So I know George is on this, and I think I in the little mini documentary they were saying that um, Paul was saying that he put the slide guitar part on, right? But so yeah. how much of George really is on this song? The the rhythm guitar part is I George. That's about, that's about it. Yeah, that's it. Because like I don't it's think like an acoustic rhythm guitar. I think that's true. Right. They didn't get very far with working on the song in '95, so there's really not much more than that. Yeah. And, and the story that I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that uh, George wanted to play slide guitar at the time, and 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 Paul McCartney's response was something along the lines of, "Isn't that a bit a little, a little too much like uh, My Sweet Lord?" So uh, oh. so George was like, "Oh, 
Oh, good. Oh, yeah, great. Well, well, I guess none of that then. So, uh, right, and I think right. later Paul, I think uh, the way I read it, Paul had some sort of pangs of regret later on. That that's probably not the worst idea. Let me. Yeah. I I was probably I was the asshole who talked him out of it. I'll have to be the asshole who plays slide, <laughs> you know, bad slide guitar in almost in the style of George Harrison on my almost. Beatles record. Right. Uh, you know, Paul's a pretty musical guy. Playing slide guitar, I don't know. Ah. Uh, not compared to George, he he doesn't have he, he ain't got it. But I'm glad that he did it though. It's a good mo. It's a beautiful moment <laughs> in the song. It really is. I have to say too that that part right at the very beginning of the documentary where you see the three of them just all sitting down, and they both got ukuleles and Ringo's playing his knee, slapping yeah, on his knee. Yeah. I love like that. literally. I'm just like. I'm losing my shit right there. Right. I'm like, if, yeah. if that, if, if like, that's the video you're yeah. done. Have a great day. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Seeing yeah. these three people together in yeah, 1995, I just, I love you know, that. where was this stuff in 95 when they were trying to hawk all this crap on us? That was great. And then just the seeing them work together on it and the backstory of that, like, this is the one they couldn't finish. Yes. Right. Right. And it's the one that was like just sort of eaten away at him. And then that puts the context in it with Ringo sort of talking about we had to finish it. And I think we always talk about Paul, Paul, Paul in here. But this this record lets Ringo to really do some his, his drumming comes a little bit more to the forefront than some of the other Beatle recordings of sort of late 60s and 70s. But I yeah. also think that. He, there's also a determination in Ringo to do this too, which I thought was interesting because mm -hmm. it's been very Paul focused, but um, that is a very focused, less, less um, jovial Ringo. We see, we have like straight ahead balls to the wall Ringo in this thing, which I think is yeah. a really interesting contrast to sort of what everyone thinks of Ringo when they talk about yeah. him. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that I was planning on bringing up into this, this discussion is um, the importance of Ringo in the sound of this song, because Ringo not only has a very distinctive style, but those drums have an incredibly identifiable sound. Mm. And when you hear, you know, we were talking about John's voice in isolation. When you hear him doing the drum parts and it sounds like Ringo, mm -hmm. it, it, they, those drums just have that, that yeah. ring to them. They, and mm -hmm. they were talking about Paul, you know, recorded his parts, sent the tapes over to uh, to Ringo to put the drum parts on, mm -hmm. and Ringo does his drumming, sends the files back, and 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 Paul says, and now this song is starting to cook, you know, because that's that's what Ringo yeah, adds. He Ringo. adds that drive to it, and he adds that that rhythm and that sound, and I think he is. I mean, I'm a drummer, so obviously I think he's absolutely indispensable. But I think that he adds dimensions to these songs that people overlook sometimes. Yeah. I think these other two drummers would agree. <laughs> I, no, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I, I was absolutely fascinated. The thing I wanted to freeze frame in that documentary was that few seconds of him sitting at that particular kit. And I spoke with a drummer friend of mine earlier um, who happens to work. Uh, he works on Ringo's uh, crew. Uh, mm. on the show on his travel to the all-star wow uh and i was asking him about uh if what he knew about the kit in that video and uh and uh because i didn't rec i you know uh, uh it was um i saw it was a white marine pearl kit and it's a he says it's a wfl which makes it earlier than his standard mid-60s kit that would have been maybe a mid-50s to early 60s mm -hmm. um uh, white, white marine pearl kit standard 13 16 22 but there also seemed to be 
he, which he couldn't identify. And one of those shots, there seemed to be a second floor Tom that had a wooden hoop on it um, in one of those mm-hmm. shots. Mm-hmm. So I, do we know what, we don't know what that is on that's on my drummer brain went to that. And I also couldn't tell what snare drum he had. Um, uh, and uh, he told me that this was most likely a, uh, a Ludwig Piccolo, uh, maybe a 13, one of those three by 13 piccolos that he likes to use for recordings, which makes sense because yeah. those kind of drums sound fantastic. You don't think of that as a Ringo drum. I certainly don't. Um, and it doesn't sound weird when he plays it. Like he's some like, uh, you know, da, 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 dum. It doesn't sound sound like some weird thing. It sounds, it sounds very warm and natural. And and again, like Mm -hmm. that's the way he plays. That's his, that's the sound of Ringo. It's just his, his attack. And, you know, his, you can see the way his, his body language when he plays, the way he shows you, the way he sort of finesses a symbol, very, you know, very, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the sort of grace, you know, put some body language and, you know, part of that's because he's on film, but that's part of the way he plays it. You know, the, the symbols uh, side to side kind of thing. He uses a lot of body English when he plays. It's yeah. one of his char- main characteristics. Yeah. Shol- was- puts the shoulder in when he leans, when he leans over his left hand, he kind of puts that shoulder <laughs> up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I thought was very interesting um, was that, was them having to keep the string, the whole string section that Giles yeah. Martin was was putting together and, and composing and recording. Yeah. Secret in the dark. Oh, about, that's right. They couldn't tell anyone what it was for. Yeah. They had I mean yeah. McCartney was there, obviously, but it was sort of like this is a McCartney thing. They didn't yeah. know they were playing on the final Beatles song. Yeah, that's yeah, they couldn't let that they wouldn't that would be yeah. They couldn't yeah, let that, that kind like of stuff sort of leak out. To, yeah. to, no, they have to avoid finding, leaks at all costs. Yeah, and imagine finding out that when I want to know, I want to know how their reactions were when they found. Yeah, we're getting interviewed. Those people will definitely get interviewed. Like now, knowing what you know now, like I'm, I'm glad they didn't. I'm like, I'm glad they didn't tell me. I'm uh, the pressure oh, would have yeah. been much worse if I, you know, bad enough, like recording from McCartney. Okay, that, and I'm he's sure standing right there. I don't know how easy that. I'm sure that's really easy. Oh, Paul McCartney. Oh, great. <laughs> and I wonder if anyone had any suspicions or if anyone, because you said, well, Ira, you, like you said, said it was like leaked. a jury. We're going to find out. Leave, <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to come out of the woodwork. Undoubtedly, they're going to seek those people out. Yeah, there's no doubt. I'm, I, I gave it a week. Tops. <laughs> but I really did love how they, you know, they brought Giles in for that son of George. Yeah. I Martin. love that. Uh, I, I was thinking about, you know, the, the fact that they buried various elements from other songs. There's some you can hear, some you can't quite hear. And someone was uh, posited that that the that triplet ending at the end. I, I'm like, oh, I'm, I wonder, like. That's a particular arrangement thing, obviously, that wasn't on the original demo. So someone had to write that ending. At first, I thought that would be maybe a thing Paul would do. And I thought, and someone said, no, that's probably from the Giles Martin string arrangement. And I think, mm-hmm. oh, let's say, well, whoever, let's say Giles wrote that, that down, down, bound, this four to four chords down. It's a beautiful, you know, in a song that's in this sort of slow motion, four, four, very slow, 80, about 88 beats per minute. And, and then suddenly this little triplet thing at the end, my mind immediately went to the end of and all the you know we can work it out which goes from four four very moderate tempo to three four and ends in this particular down down and ends that kind of ends like that and i thought oh what a perfect nod to if you're going to nod to a song we can work it out mm-hmm. that's a perfect thing to nod to this sort of like hey john and paul we can you know it's a perfect john paul balance song and you hear mm-hmm. it here too like we find we had to find a way to work it out mm technically and you know i don't know they worked it out like 
they they covered a lot of bases. They really hit a, a lot of beautiful points. You know, it's a beautifully it's beautifully constructed. It's not clunky like the Jeff Lynn uh, uh, was always. <laughs> you know, they were always. You know, we laugh about it because it's so obvious now. At the time, like we took it because that's what we had, but. Now, in retrospect, you hear like with this beautiful, clean, easy production is so much better for, for what you want from a Beatles, you know, recording. So so far, and you know the fact that they, now you hear that the sort of ghostly quality of, uh, of John's vocals on those other tracks, they sound like they're kind of floating somewhere else entirely. Yeah. Here, it's in the track, you know, it's present. That's part of the beauty of it. I think they yeah. did an amazing job. The other thing too that I thought was fascinating is that one they kind of talked to some people after this is that apparently almost like daily rushes with a filmmaker, like every step of the way McCartney sent everything to Ringo so he could hear it in real time too. Yeah. Right. So it is a lot of people are dismissing this as like, Oh, McCartney's finishing a Lennon song. And that bothers me because this is very much a collaboration with Ringo and Paul, but also Sean Lennon and Giles Martin to a certain degree as well. And I, I just think that kind of, that kind of irritated me a little bit with people talking about it. But I think that, yeah, it is in many ways a love letter between John and, and, and Paul, but it is also very much um, for those two, I think I talked about before, this is unfinished business. Mm -hmm. And I think for them, this is putting away 40 years of grief. I really feel like they're putting away the baggage of John death. John's death. Ringo was, I think Ringo was supposed to see him the next day or something. Um, or they each were supposed to see John at some point, you know, af after the time he got shot. But I think this, this almost feels like a, like closure to me musically, which is great. And I think you hear it in every level of the song. I think the nods to other Beatles songs are in there. I think the, the strings as well. They're very, you know, they're like Paul says, they're very much of the, the time. So I think calling it now and then is a nice bookend because you have past Lennon with present McCartney and Ringo, right? You have past George with current George and Ringo. So it is a song very much about their past. And I hate to say that that long and winding road they sort of took, right? I sort of think that idea is sort of in this recording. that This is the journey we took together. And now we're closing that door um, because they couldn't really close that door together. Even though they broke up and it was hostile and it was ugly, I think the Beatles were very much in the mindset of like, um, it was almost a pause. And I think at some point they probably would have done something and then it would have been a clean, pleasant, more pleasant close of the door. So I have a question, Rob, to you to this point. Why do we not, or do we just not remember when we heard Free as a Bird for the first time, let's say, or Real Love, did we not think that then, that it was sort of the closure? Because we didn't know now and then 20 years later, 15, whatever it would be. I think because Free what as a think? Bird, I mean, when I heard Free as a Bird, I, I mean, it was like, okay, this is nice. It's really upbeat. And I thought, man, I was thinking, I remember when Free as a Bird came out and I heard it and I was working at a record store. I was like, I thought, I thought the last Beatle record should be sad. You know, hmm. I, I, I have to say, I don't think Free a Bird is a particularly happy song. I think the other one, Real Love, is kind of happy. Yeah, there's I agree. There's something, again, melancholy in, in I think, in, in, in that song. Well, it's got well. more hooks in it. It's got more. It's a yeah, more, it's a more, it's more, of a it's more structured record. out. Yeah, yeah it's I a little more structured out quarterly. Did we all feel sad then, kind of, and feel like that that was the was closure, or did we not? I don't know. I did I, not feel know. it was closure. I thought it was kind of like, it was a little too, I guess, structured is the word I was using, but I'm, 
I'm, I'm using the word is a little too poppy for me, but I'm probably struggling to find the right. Yeah. Sort Again, of I, I, I think we got to chalk that up to, to Jeff Lynn. I'm going to point to mm, Jeff Lynn okay. and say yeah. that possibly the reason that it had this kind of feeling that because Jeff Lynn really made it into a pop, you know, like this very solid pop structure. It gave it a, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of a, I don't know how to, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, totally. you hear something. This, this, this production style is so much more naturalistic, like. Uh, like, you know, like you would want a Beatles recording to be where all the elements are clean and clear and, you know, tonal, the tonality of the drums, not this, you know, this big yeah, 80s I, kind of Jeff Lynne snare drum. That, you know, Ira, that is it. I felt like Free as a Bird was a Beatles song that got handed to somebody else to finish. Yeah, yeah. And that always just kind of, I thought. See, what I'd like, like to hear is, who I like to hear them going back and remix those two and un-Jeff Lynne them. Oh, interesting. You know, like they did with, uh, you mm-hmm. know, with with uh, with Phil Spector's. Yeah, let's let's yeah, get, like, let's uh, let's uh, let's yeah. un Jeff Lynn those last two. Free as a bird. Yeah, naked. I'll buy that. Yeah, I'll, that's another single for next for next Christmas. I'll buy that. Shit. The only reason Lynn's there is because he's hanging around Harrison, right? Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. He and Harrison are tied at the hip at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not a, okay, it's not so that's interesting. I just was wondering if it was like a time, like a just a perspective thing, or like we're not, you know, we're not remembering because that yeah, was so I, long I ago, or no, not. I, it's, possible. it's possible. I don't remember having the same feeling of no, I did not. Of like so. of, of final, final finality that I feel now. I didn't I, either. I remember, you know, I worked at a store. I heard it. Our job was to sell it. It was selling like crazy. That sort of felt like, and and again, it's the '90s, so the time, the timing of when it came out is is different. That felt almost like a money grab to me, mm. right? Or almost like a filler. I didn't really, it didn't really yeah. feel like, I mean, I knew it was a Beatles song, but I just kind of like, it's kind of an afterthought. Like I went back and listened to those two songs again for the first time in decades after this. I, I know you said it reminded you of an ELO song, right? But I'm listening to Free as a Bird and I'm almost like, is this a song someone's giving the Flaming Lips? That's the first thing I thought yeah, of, right? Yeah, it, it's yeah, like it just spacey. didn't see. There's a lot of like uh, flanging. It, it and just it didn't just, yeah. a lot of magical stuff. Yeah, it just didn't sound like any era of the Beatles I could tangently put my hand on. Yeah, it sounded like Jeff Lynne's version of the psychedelic Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and I'm going to be totally honest. I think that this one has much more of sound of finality to it because it's not just John that's gone. Yeah. It's John and George yeah. and it's Paul at what? 81 and Ringo, you know, right up there with him. So I think that this just because of its timing has just has much more of a feel of, you know, the final hammer being. That pains you know, me to think lowered. of that, like that there's that they are that age because it makes, I mean, it's just, I don't know. That gives me a heartache, honestly. Well, you know what's amazing is that they aren't old men. No, they're not. They're eighty, but they don't. I mean, they're still they're, so vibrant yeah, and yeah. so vital. Well, they take and, really good care of themselves. They have active lifestyles. They're moving around. Yeah. They're on tour. Yep. Like, like they're super but it's active. Still, right? still like you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's all you know. The, the 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 other thing about this song is that there's a mortality in it. I hear yes, it immediately. I hear it in the first verse. I was looking at the lyrics earlier. I just want to quote them. Um, it's it's just a. Uh, um, I know it's true. It's all because of you. And then he says this, and if I make it through. Now, mm. that line is really super powerful. It's make it through implies like you're in something that you need to get out of. You're in something bad and you hope you get a disease or something really bad and you hope you get out the other side. So when I hear like, and if I make it through, and in a way like John didn't make it through, like John's right. been gone a long time now. So there's a, in a way, this is a very sad comment about 
what could have been, what should have been, yeah. you know, like uh, it's the past singing. It's a goat. It's so many, it's so many things. It's so, uh, it's so beautiful. And it's profoundly sad because there's a, there's a, but the other thing that really gets me is the other lyric is, is this one. He says, um, oh, in the, in the, in the one that, uh, uh, yeah, uh, now and then I miss you. And now and then I, I want you to be there for me always, always to return to me. That's so beautiful and so romantic. And yeah. I don't even know if John said that on the original demo or that's something that Paul, I think Paul added that line always to return to really? me as one of Paul's additions, specific additions to the song, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there's this, there's this like, uh, it's beautiful. It's, it's so um, heart, it's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. One of the things that I have heard in an accusatory manner about this song is People feel that Paul has been too heavy-handed in recontextualizing or changing the narrative. And I'm just wondering, I don't think that any of us agree with that. No, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't agree with that at all. I mean, not, not the way I see it. No, I could, I could set up a very yeah. good argument. No, but no, I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> yeah. I think he's too emotionally involved in it. Yeah. Um, I, I, if anything else, I think he's walking around this thing on eggshells. Yeah, right? I think he's looking mm. back yeah. also at his, I think he's got 80 years to look back on. Well, you know, not 80, but for the well, he's, Beatles. He's the, he's the main caretaker of yeah, left of the Beatles exactly. legacy. You know, Ringo can only do so much, but he being the creative force that he is. Yeah. Right. He was able to guide this process in a way that, you know, yeah. Like, there's that's no the best, you know, yeah, yeah, you couldn't really have, you know, they, they, you have all the Ringo you could get Paul, you know, engineer that they figured out how to do it and, you know, craft it into something a little more concise. I mean, uh, uh, you know, he's a, like, I get yeah, along with Harney and I, I just, I had to say, I just, read, I just read a book about a year ago about, uh, it's called the Beatles and the historians. And it's a really interesting, really crunchy book about how the Beatles were, the Beatles story as it was perceived over time. And she broke it into basic four sections. And the first section is the, while the band existed, there was a, there was an understood band, like this is what the Beatles are. There's no boss yeah. and uh, we're all really, you know, there was a, it was an understood and you didn't, no one in the band or around the band crossed those lines or said what the real truth was about who the Beatles were. And mm. then, and that, and that, and that was existed while the band existed. When the band broke up, the overarching narrative about the Beatles came from John, who was the only one who said anything for a long time. And he did a big interview with John Winter. And all through the 70s, John's bile about McCartney and being a pretty face and all the crap songs that he, that they were awful, that he wrote, that became the overarching thing. Everyone like, oh, yeah, John's, John's, yeah, John. And because everyone loved John. And then after yeah. he died, it got worse because John wasn't there. So everyone lionized John. And Paul started a campaign somewhere in the mid 80s to try to take back some ground because he had been painted mm -hmm. as somehow not as creative as John. And he was equally important to the growth of the Beatles in every way that John was. Right. Oh, they yeah. were both completely different individuals. But the idea that it was John, 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 and then Paul was some kind of, that's the way John would have painted it if you go by his narrative that he set up in the early 70s. And that's what most Beatles fans kind of adhered to for a long, long time. Uh, and then McCartney started his process of sort of trying to arrest the narrative back from his perspective, which he was very successful at, I think, uh, uh, many years ago. Was that the book they wrote with this from Miles? Uh, he wrote that book in the 80s or the 90s, uh, mm -hmm. many years from now. Fantastic. So, yeah, and he was very good at it. And then the fourth episode, the fourth phase of the Beatles came around Mark Lewison because people were writing all kinds of Beatles books about 
what they perceived and what they saw, but they wouldn't attribute stuff. And yeah. Mark Lewis approached it like a historian and said, well, who said what and how, how, you know, how, how good a source is that? Mm-hmm. Secondary sources. So he, he approached the Beatles story like a historian would and didn't put anything in the story that he couldn't absolutely prove. So there's a lot of these books written with a lot of hearsay and this guy supposedly, you know, he, they don't, they don't tell you where the Lewison did the research and made sure everything that they've, they've been talking about since their demise, he's like figured it out. Like what's that's interesting as best he can, yeah. what's what and what isn't. So, and that's, so that's that we're in this phase now where Beatles, Beatles history is much clearer because we have a much clearer view from all these different sources, but he, but they're who are passed away. The Get Back documentary also really clarifies a lot of that. And you see Paul, well, you see them all. I mean, and I think, I don't know if you remember what I said about that, but you also see Ringo's, <laughs> what a powerful presence Ringo is, even though yeah. he's not saying much, he's yeah. not doing much. He's sitting there like this with his arms crossed half the time, looking at the other three. Yeah. And yeah. all of a sudden, out of the blue, the song comes together. Why? It's yeah. because of Ringo. So there's that yeah. too. And then there's, yeah. of course, George. I mean, yeah. so yeah, but yeah. definitely you see, I think in the documentary, you see Paul really, really coming out of, you know, the under, uh, out from under the shadow of John's, yeah. what John used to say, you know, about him. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fast, I, I'm, I was absolutely fascinated with that dynamic, oh, you know. Uh, yeah. And I did think there were moments I thought, wow, Paul, why are you trying to write this whole fancy lyric under like this beautiful plaintive, like in Don't Let Me Down? He tries to add this whole sort of call and response vocal thing with George. And like, George is like, really? And and I'm like, really? Because we all know how the song ended up. (laughs) And the only guy there who wasn't like, really, was Lennon, who was like, whatever. John kind of checked out, you know? He's like, yeah, he's Paul McCartney. Yeah, he'll figure it out. I'm uh, sure he'll come up with something great. Doesn't I don't get it, but yeah, I'm yeah. glad they dropped that idea. But, but no, yeah. I thought that was like that's kind of pretty pushy of Paul to write this whole kind of cutesy call and response thing in this song that John is like bearing. His, like he's really John is like leaving it all on the table. That song is like really pretty. He's barfing up this, <laughs> this like profound love for Yoko Ono. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> so the last part of this story is that so this episode is coming out on november 6th and the end of this week friday november 10th the reissue of the the big collection the red and blue collections which is the early part of the beatles and then the second half of the beatles with now and then included in it is going to be released and they are both expanded editions and the second volume includes all of Giles Martin's remasters of, you know, wow. all the later albums. And the first volume is going to also include everything on that CD is or on the album is going to be remastered or has been already remastered by Giles. So this is our first time hearing Giles's um, Atmos remasters on the earlier material. And I'm really excited about that. I'm definitely going to be buying both volumes because I want the, you know, I want that, that new, the most clear version we can get of the earlier stuff. And I have to be completist about it. So I have to have them both, you know? So I'm very excited to, to get those collections uh, again, because I've had them a few times already. <laughs> yeah. I was just th- thinking the same thing. I have a collection. The only thing I collect, and seriously, is Beatles records. So I just want to show up my collections. So <laughs> I, 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 this is, now I have to say, like, I grew up in the Beatle world, but I, the red and blue albums, I didn't own them. 
I, I, yeah. I wasn't interested in them until I became a collector and I thought I had oh, to have some. So I have the, uh, the original uh, U.S. release of the Red and Blue mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. – not, not, not very special, but that's the original U.S. one from the time. Um, but what I didn't know was there, uh, that there was a U.K. version of the same thing. Oh. Where maybe slight, I don't remember now, but there's slightly different track order or different songs and maybe different mixes. So I had to get them. And then, <laughs> um, and then in 1978, uh, it turns out what they, uh, uh, the, I don't know, it was an anniversary, maybe 25 years. I don't know what the anniversary was, but in 78, for some reason, they, uh, a- Apple Capital released a bunch of like special edition stuff, like uh, picture discs and colored vinyl stuff. And of course they, they, um, they put out the red and blue albums in red and blue vinyl. Oh, yep. Yeah. So uh, as they're doing now, obviously, I have uh, those. Yeah. So I have. That's part of my. Uh, yeah. That, that you know they're not uh, they're not rare or anything, but they're really oh, fun yeah. and beautiful. That's pretty. Nice. Yeah. No, they're really lovely. I, I love. Uh, I have a sort of a penchant colored vinyl and uh, and picture discs. I think that I find them really fascinating. Cool. And then and then of course there was the and then they remastered them in twenty fourteen. So I think these are like I didn't even crack these. These are like. Wow. Still, yeah, I'm like, why do I need to listen to this record at all? I just want to own it. <laughs> yeah. And now there's two more for you. Yeah, now another three for maybe to not listen to. I'm going to leave them in the leave them in the in the in the, in the case. It'll be worth more in 20 years when I sell them. Now I'm wondering whether I open it at all, at all or not. I'm still I don't know. Well, I'm debating. There's the brand new mixes by Giles of the early stuff, so I I have to listen to it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're, you're right, going right. to have to open it. Face yeah, it. Yeah. So you got to get two copies, one that you can keep yeah. sealed and one that you can open. Well, you, know? you kind of get an idea of what that's going to be like too with Love Me Do, which is the B side. Yeah. Exactly. So you kind of get an idea of what you're what you're going to hear. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You might add too that by the end of the week we're recording this, the Beatles will have scored their 18th number one hit in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the minute I heard this, I'm like. I don't care if the record's terrible. I just want the Beatles to be number one because I didn't yeah. get to see that really in my lifetime. Right. 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 Um, and you know, I was, I was talking to somebody about this as well. The other day is that like, I'm living in, you know, most people in the generation before me lived in a world where the Beatles and the stones both had albums on the top 40 charts. Right. Mm-hmm. And the only time I've ever had it, it was sort of like when it's like a reissue or something. Right. And normally it was like one was leaving, but we're going to have like the top five albums are going to be Beatles and the Stones. And this is, yeah, this is a great oh, yeah. friggin' moment Stones for rock and roll, right? Put yes. away the vocoders, put away the drum machines, as much as I love them, as much as everybody, this is a moment for rock and roll. One, yeah, it's no. also a cultural moment. This is a great opportunity to really just learn about the cultural and historical legacy of rock and roll and where we are now. Uh, because this is a time when you you learn about the Beatles, you can learn about the Stones, take it a step back, listen to Little Richard, listen to you know Chuck Berry, listen to Buddy Holly, just keep going back. This is the time to do that. We've gotten away from this as music consumers, and I'm really hoping mm. that this opens a door, because I know the Buddy Holly remasters are coming, I think, next year. Yeah. But um, I'm hoping this is a time that a lot of people just really appreciate this particular moment in music that we had these I, I, right on. You know, these two I, bands I, and and especially the Beatles walking on the planet because really we live in this era now I, I don't know how it is now for for you as a touring musician that's making records but to me as someone who plays them we've moved away from album 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 to single 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 yeah. and the Beatles were the king 
of, along with Elvis of single, single, single. Right. And then they yeah. started doing the album, album, album. Yeah. yeah so yeah. this is an interesting dichotomy where we are at the Beatles. And I'm just so yeah. happy that whole new groups of people are going to discover this. That's the yeah. big thing about those two records coming out. Yeah. And this yeah. thing, I think, sort of ties that together. I think this is the connection between those records coming out and where we are now. It sort of gives somebody a present. Yeah. You know, it, it'll, it, it'll, it'll reignite. And, and I, you know, I, I, I always talk about the idea that in 1977, when they released uh, the Star Club um, recordings, the, um, they had been bootlegged for many years and uh, they tried, the Beatles didn't want to release them. So someone started a label, like Wing a Song. There's another label that released them in 77. And I, 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 I'm of the mind, I don't know if I read this somewhere or just, I, I really feel like that was really central, uh, really helpful to what became the punk and the and the new and the power pop movement was this sort of really brutal, primal, you know, early Beatles like bar band energy of just these you know nasty guitars and you know this this manic uh, early rock energy. I think it was really, I think I, I think a lot of band, I think a lot of people were influenced by it at the time, and I think we you know I think every time there's a major Beatles release, yeah. people focus back on the beautiful simplicity of their songwriting you know the power yeah. of them as individuals but how they were able to sort of meld these things into these compositions mm -hmm. and the timeless of, it's always very influential i hope it will be as well that sort of ramshackled sound that they had too that sort of like bill haley on speed oh is, yeah as an error of the brilliance to be detecting it was prelude and to be yeah i mean i think it's i think that's i'm trying to get my hands on some prelude and i can't find <laughs> any anywhere i'm trying I, it just it's out of stock that's definitely all right <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no. People keep asking, are we back? Yeah, I guess we're back. Back to talk about cigars, movies, TV shows, and any other nerdy topics here on the Cigar Nerds Podcast. Check us out on cigarnerdpodcast.com and esonetwork.com. And we have a YouTube channel at Cigar Nerd Podcast where we do cigar reviews, live versions of the show, and any other dumb thing we think to record. Okay, and this past week, I asked around in a few places for people to share with us their initial impressions of this new song, and we got a lot of great responses, primarily from a Facebook group of fans of a now-defunct Sirius Channel volume. Shout out to all my fellow volume maniacs. So here's what people were thinking about a day after this song came out, Brent Sowers says, Paul should have left the quote, George like slide solo off. Otherwise I love it. Maybe if I didn't watch the documentary first, I might have enjoyed the solo more. Julie Ann Anderson says, I really like it, but I agree with the melancholy, melancholy feeling. It makes me think of people I love in heaven. Um, April McBride says this made me misty eyed. The band back together is something special. Jan Spencer says, oh, crap, I listened, and damn it, now I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> and we have this from Eric McGee, who says, I'll be the first person to tell you, I'm not the biggest John Lennon fan, but having the Beatles back together through modern technology is still magical. We also heard from Dean Lucas, who said, I was left feeling a bit sad. The song itself was better than I expected, but I had a hard time shaking off the melancholy vibe I got from it. Mm-hmm. Kevy Zim responded by saying, like it a lot. Lennon's isolated voice in the documentary is haunting. It's much better than the other two, quote, new songs from 95. And Mike Garvin said, 
Not a comment on the song itself, but hearing John's voice on something I haven't heard before gave me goosebumps. We heard from Drew Frady. I hope I'm saying that right, Drew. Says, uh, I'm a pretty big Beatles fan. I've seen Paul and Ringo live. They should have left well enough alone. In my opinion, this is just mediocre. And uh, let's see, Stuart Taubel says, I'm a big Beatles fan. I have their channel on preset and sing harmony in the car. That said, it's not as good as Free as a Bird or Real Love. I was hoping for goosebumps. And we heard from Gerald Williams. At first listen, I thought it was pretty good. But with each subsequent listen, I find I like it more. I even found myself humming it at the grocery store while I was shopping. It definitely has the flavor of each Beatle from Paul's bass to Ringo's drumming style. Other than Paul's integration of George's slide guitar style, it really doesn't feel Beatles to me. It feels more like John did a solo song and his mates contributed. Either way, I still really enjoy it. And then we heard from someone named J.M. Tuffley. Who's that guy? Yeah, who's he? <laughs> Free as a Bird and Real Love required Paul and George to sing alongside John's cassette vocal because it helped mask the quality they could get out of the tape at the time. The anthology tracks still have the piano from the demo attached to John's vocal. In the new track, John's vocal and the piano are separate, which is nice. But if you didn't know the other players on it, you'd swear it was a, a John Lennon solo track. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for all that feedback we got. That was a lot of different opinions from all over yeah. the spectrum. And I think that's very telling. And, uh, you know, I appreciate everybody chiming in. All right. Well, Ira, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this with oh, us. My and, pleasure. My pleasure. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, Tell us what's coming up for you, for Not a Surf, for Bambikino, oh, whatever's sure. going well, on. I can give you two fact, two things I can tell you for sure. Uh, okay. Bambikino, Union Pool, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, December sixteenth. Yes, that's a it'll be a beautiful Saturday night. Wear a leather jacket. I'm hoping it's going to be leather jacket weather. Oh yeah, I'm going to be in some pointy, the pointiest shoes you've ever seen in your life, <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, I'm going to get, I'm about, to, uh, I'm ready to kill it. Let, you know, please. I, I was going to tell this whole story. I'm not going to go into it, but the last yeah. Bambikino show was revelatory for me. And I, 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 I like, I, I made some mistakes, but I'm not making those mistakes again. Okay. So uh, I'm ready to kill. I'm very, very excited about it. So Bambikino is going to be one of its rare performances then, right just before Christmas. And then Not A Surf has been working on a new record. We've got the final mixes are coming in, I think maybe tonight, tomorrow. We <gasps> oh my gosh. We're, uh, Archer Friend, uh, same, um, same with the people we've used. Some we've used the same studio we used on the last record. Uh, that was Queen's old studio there in Wales, beautiful studio. And our producer Ian, the same as the last record. Some of the same characters because they were available to us. So, uh, and then, uh, um, and our friend John Goodmanson is a really great mixer up in Seattle. He's doing the mixes, and they sound fat and beautiful. Oh, um, so that's coming together, and we are. Uh, uh, it's one of those things I shouldn't talk about out of school, but there's a record. La we're we're changing labels and. The, it's kind of there's a little flux going on and we'll see how it pans out but either, one way or the other we'll be releasing a record somewhere in the middle of next year I oh this is so, so exciting uh, yeah. that's amazing oh, yeah, yeah it's, it is pretty amazing to me i can't I, I personally can't believe it but yeah uh given all the variables that were 20 i don't know 20 it's almost 25 years i think the first record the first single came out the first record was 96 and now oh, it's amazing yeah that's ridiculous 23 years ira you guys i feel and i'm not just wow. saying this but you, every record is better than that. You guys get better. Oh, thank better you for saying that. Oh. Like, that's really an oh, that's amazing so thing no, no, for bands so because that does Man, not happen we're... almost, not all the time, but like that doesn't happen yeah. all the time. Let's yeah. put it that well, way. Well, we're making, so yeah, we're just getting better at, better at whatever it is we are. I guess, you know, we get better and better at it yeah. as we get older because we're not, 
you know, I don't know. We've, we have our own particular means of expression. It, it's, it's very particular and, and, and it's completely ours and uh, we lean into it. So, yeah, I'm very, you know, Matthew has written a, a batch of really beautiful songs and uh, they start to sound uh, fantastic. And so we'll see. There's some record label issues, like I said, but uh, mm-hmm. that'll, we'll, we'll sort all that stuff out. Well, maybe you will allow us to invite you on again once the album comes out oh, and you can. I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give a track by track. Yeah. Excellent. Hey, what snare drum was on each track. Matthew, you got yes. to yeah. Matthew. I made notes about what snare drums I use. I don't want nice. I finally started writing these things down. I don't know why I don't do that. Nice. All right. Stephanie, where can people find more about you? Oh, okay. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. Um, you can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. And I also have a website, thereartbirds.com. And you can find me on uh, you know, Spotify and all those, what do you call them? Streaming. Uh, streaming things. What do you call streaming, them? Those streaming, streaming. Streaming and streaming. Ooh. <laughs> Is that where you go back in time? Yeah. Like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. Bravo. So uh, you can find me on uh, KDHX in St. Louis on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 with Juxtaposition. Um, we affectionately call season 28. Um, affectionately calls he's 28. Yeah, I've been doing this for a while. I'm old, <laughs> and um, that's on Wednesdays from seven to nine central. So, at, at the time, I, I I don't know math, and um, you can listen to that. So if you're out and about and you miss it, you can go to the archive stream and listen to it later, um, or you can listen to it in real time. However you want to do it, all the shows are archived for two weeks. Also Mondays from six to eight Greenwich Mean Time. Um, which is the middle of the day in America, which is fantastic. Uh, you can listen to my show Antics on Louder Than War Radio uh, as well, um, which is a little bit more freeform than the other show. And then also the Need, uh, Muscle on the NeedCoffee.com uh, podcast. And uh, I'm on Facebook and the whatever they call Twitter now. And uh, also Blue Sky. Right on. All right. And I've got a couple of other podcasts. I got to up my I profile. Do. I don't have enough stuff to talk about. What are you, <laughs> <doing>? <laughs> um, <clears throat> you can check me out on the Earth Station Trek podcast, which is a Star Trek show, obviously, and on Doctor Who A to Z, Ooh. which is all about Doctor Who. Oh God, awesome. All right, everybody, take care. Thank you so much for listening this week. We will be back next week to talk about the great producers. Looking forward to it. Everybody take care, have a great week, and we will see you next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network. Your station for all things geek.